Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Schmozone podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Sheath Underwear, the most comfortable underwear I've ever worn in my entire life. This stuff is absolutely amazing. They have the dual pouch, and I just absolutely love this. Never been the same. So comfortable. They have this multi-directional fabric. Once you get a pair of these, you'll never buy another pair of underwear again. Use the promo code SCHMO, get 20% off, sheathunderwear.com. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Let's start the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Schmozone Podcast, episode 34. I'm Dave Schmolenson, a.k.a. the Schmo. My co-host is... Helen E. Sports. Gotta emphasize the sports. <laughs> yeah. And today's guest, I am extremely excited for. He's the Senior VP of Athlete Health and Performance for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. None other than Mr. Jeff Nowitzki. Thanks for joining us. You got it, guys. How you doing? We are great. Yeah. Excellent. We appreciate you having uh, ha- you coming on the podcast. When we started this podcast uh, around the Super Bowl in February, we made a list of potential guests that we want to have. We circled your name, and I'm glad that today is the day. I'm honored and flattered. Thank you, guys. Thank you for being here. Um, I do want to start this thing off right off the bat. You know, that Golden Stitch nickname, you did not necessarily embrace that before. But guess what? You've owned it. You've taken care of it. It is your thing. It is your baby. The golden snitch. It is. And, you know, it's funny. I go, well, when we were having crowds, you know, I'll walk into my seat and you walk through, you know, kind of the fighter walk with fans on both sides and all the time. I mean, golden snitch, golden snitch. I get people to say, hey, do you mind if I call you the word? And I'm like, hey, it's fine. And I have, you know, I've kind of embraced it. I mean, no one wants to have a nickname with snitch in it, but at least it's the golden snitch, right? That's right. You're golden. <laughs> and you've made t-shirts. It's it's crazy. You've gone all about it. Speaking of that, I actually brought you guys gifts. I come bearing gifts. Oh, uh, you are too kind. The exclusive Golden Snitch t-shirt. There's oh, one wow. for you, David. I love Alan, it. One for you. Hold this up. Amazing. Where it's where beautiful. can our audience uh, purchase these amazing gifts? Well, you can't. That, I you mean, can? they're oh. as exclusive as you can get. Oh. So the story behind it is, you know, I Joe Rogan and, and Shab nicknamed me that. Yes. People started calling me that around the office. Uh, so my fiance, one Christmas, I opened up a present and she had made you know, about 15 or 20 of these. So I brought one to Rogan, gave it to him on his show. And, um, you know, fighters, coworkers, everybody wants one. But 
I'm not uh, I'm not selling them at this point. Um, just have a few left, actually. So you guys get one. I'm super stoked. We put it on. Put it over the Schmozone shirt. I'm, it's comfortable. I'm an honor to wear this. It is. It's a nice fabric, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's very, like really very comfortable. Soft, comfortable. So yeah. So let's go back for a second. When I first read about you and heard about you, I was mm-hmm. in high school. Mm-hmm. I read the book Game of Shadows, and um, I know all about the Balco incident, mm-hmm. Victor Conti, Marion Jones, Barry Bonds, uh, your career as a federal investigator. I believe you you were worked at that for, was it 23 years, the Michael Jordan number? Yeah, but just short of 23 years, 22 and a half. And you were a part of exposing something that has just been going on for decades and professional sports, Olympic level sports, maybe amateur sports across the world. And uh, you really highlighted some of the biggest names and athletes and stars. And uh, you exposed a lot of different things. And I mean, it's just evolved to where we are today and your role with the UFC. Yeah, it was, it was a crazy period of time and just, you know, a sequence of events that, you know, I think even anti doping today and how strong it is in the UFC program can be directly tied toward that scandal. Um, you know, it was always talked about in back rooms and, you know, media covering the teams kind of knew about it, but it really didn't have that public presence that it did after Balco. And the reality is Balco had, you know, in terms of drug distribution cases, I worked a lot of those in my career, regular street drugs, things like that. It was nowhere near that volume. They had maybe four or five dozen clients, but they were some of the highest profile professional athletes in the world. And it really brought a ton of tension to the issue of performance enhancing drugs in sport. Well, going back a little more, I know you graduated in accounting, right? With a degree in accounting. So how did you transition from that into becoming a special agent? Yeah, it was was just crazy. Right place at the right time. So it was my senior year in college, uh, you know, working toward an accounting degree. And the Treasury Department actually came on campus recruiting students to be special agents with the treasury department and their hook was be an accountant with a gun and at that point in the in the major i thought oh, i don't know if i'm gonna be able to sit behind a desk you know five days a week eight ten hours a day but then i heard accounting you know an accountant with a gun it caught me so um got involved in that uh worked a bunch of cases involving you know white collar fraud uh, worked a lot with the FBI and DEA on some bigger investigations and then came across this information about Balco Laboratories, which was providing these designer steroids or drugs that aren't traceable or aren't testable because nobody knows about them um, to some of the highest profile athletes in the world and thought, wow, this, this is a type of case a federal agent should work that really gains that worldwide attention, a good use of resources that is going to act as a deterrent going down the line and hopefully affect voluntary compliance with the law. So numbers wise, you know, money wise, it wasn't the biggest case ever, but certainly high profile wise, I mean, not just in the US, but worldwide media attention. And it really brought the, you know, the issue of performance enhancing drugs to the forefront. In a day and age where technology and science is only advancing and high profile athletes budgets are only increasing, is it very difficult to navigate these designer masking substances that uh, some of these higher profile athletes can get their hands on versus some of the lower level things that, that you come across? It is. That's, that's probably the biggest challenge. I mean, if you have the resources and can hire a chemist you know, to make you something, it's more difficult to detect. But in the 20 plus years I've been involved in the, in the anti-doping game, science has caught up significantly. 
Um, you know, we've seen that in our program. Everybody knows, you know, the term picogram now, the old, you know, John Jones scenario. That's parts per trillion. That's what these laboratories are able to do to detect parts per trillion in a urine sample. In regards to designer drugs, well, they may not know about the drug or what they're looking for. Another positive aspect of performance-enhancing drug and anti-doping is the biological passport, and USADA does this. So what they're looking at is not only testing each individual urine or blood sample for the drugs they know about, but they're also looking at biological markers in your blood or in your urine. And if they see things and variances that just don't make sense, I mean, everybody is gonna have small variances you know, in some of these markers, but when you see real wide ones, it's indicative of something going on. And that allows them and gives them the clues to hone in you know, more thoroughly on the athlete. So you're saying that every uh, athlete that enters USADA and the UFC protocol, you kind of have a profile of this athlete of what's the biological makeup and their, their blood, their urine and everything like that. So you could see the variances over time if something just looks odd or out of place, you know, six months, 12 months, three years down the line. Absolutely, and you know, I say this all the time, the longer you're in this program because of you know, the science advances like that, the fact that our athletes never know when they're gonna be tested. We don't even know the UFC, USADA makes all those decisions. So you know, if you're using a drug that has a quick, quick clearance time, you don't know when that knock on the door is coming. Um, so it's a very difficult game to play. The longer you're in this program, the more confidence I would have to say that these you know, are clean athletes. And now five plus years in the program, we're starting to see athletes have 50 plus tests. And I can almost say definitively, if 50 plus tests in this program, you're a clean athlete. Was there ever an athlete that you caught doing steroids or drugs that surprised you? Yeah, definitely. I like, I, I'm not surprised anymore. Um, because it, it run, it ran the gamut of, you know, different types of athletes. Some you look at and say, oh, that one's obvious. Others you look at and you say, no way. Um, but there's different ways to take these. Um, there's different combinations of drugs. Some will make you outwardly looking, you know, jacked, huge muscles. Others won't. Um, so really, yeah, I'm not surprised by anything anymore, unfortunately. I, you brought it up just moments ago, the John Jones picograms. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was December of 2018. We haven't seen much uh, kind of big names or big busts or big issues kind of since that situation. Mm -hmm. I know someone like Sugar Sean O'Malley had some issues too with just having those little infinite amounts, those trace amounts in their samples and stuff like that. What's kind of been the evolution in the testing protocols for it to be, it seems to be kind of cleaner now than it's ever been. Yeah, I definitely think so. You know, when we first announced this program, we had a press conference, and I vividly remember Lorenzo Fertitta said, look, this is a good thing, but it may get a little bit worse before it gets better. And, you know, I hate to keep bringing John up because the reality is in both of those cases, it was shown that he was not intentionally trying to cheat. He made some bad decisions on, you know, what he was taking, um, things that were contaminated with prohibited substance, but no evidence he did anything you know, on purpose and was trying to cheat. But I think because of the high profile nature of John, the fact that he was pulled off UFC 200 three days before really opened up a lot of eyes in our program. And I've talked to many fighters that said, hey, I wasn't sure if this thing was real, you know, what you guys were gonna, be, were gonna do if faced with something like this, we have to pull the main event off of arguably the hallmark event in UFC history. But it was done, and I think after that, eyes and ears really opened up. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it takes something bad for, for the population of, you know, athletes to realize. But in that case, I think since then, I agree with you that, you know, we've seen less and less 
of these positive tests. How often can a supplement accidentally get contaminated? A lot. So uh, my job previous to coming to the UFC, I worked for the Food and Drug Administration Office of Criminal Investigation, and we were tasked with investigating the dietary supplement industry. And so I worked dozens of cases in that industry and saw kind of the underbelly, the, the, you know, the inside workings of that industry. And the reality is most of the raw ingredient comes from China and the manufacturing standards in China are really, really bad. So, you know, there were many instances where companies thought they were getting legitimate, you know, compound like a protein or a vitamin, but in the factory in China being made next to the protein or vitamin was a run of some type of anabolic steroid. And you're literally facing, you know, the prospect of little particles floating up through the air, the machines not being cleaned off well enough that could get into the protein or the vitamin. And with the sensitivity of testing today, when you're talking about parts per trillion, and that's literally all it takes is a few particles floating through the air and landing on the protein or the vitamin that can cause a positive test. So it's a very, very real issue. It's not made up um, as some you know, convenient excuse to get a fighter off. It's, it's a real issue. And I know the UFC now has the partnership with Thorne for supplements. How many fighters are using this or, and how many, would you say percentage wise, you might not know the exact number off the top of your head, are still using their own independent uh, resources? Yeah, I, I don't know the numbers, but anecdotally, um, most conversations I have with fighters, and I have a lot, I, it's a daily basis about supplements. And I always direct them toward the, the Performance Institute and our you know partnership with Thorne. Because the reality is every UFC contracted fighter can get all the supplements, thorn supplements they want for free. And they're not only the safest and most tested, but they thorn actually pours the most resource and development money into their products. So they're science backed um, and they're very safe. They do what's called third party testing. And what that is, is a supplement company outsources both some of the raw ingredient and finished product to another laboratory who tests it. And they actually test it against our prohibited list. So everything that you're not allowed to have in your system is tested in that supplement. And assuming it passes that testing, it's able to get a mark on the label. And so every UFC fighter should know by now, unless it has that tested mark on the label, you should not be using that supplement. And now you guys have implemented uh, at-home testing as well. Uh, that's for, for uh, the... COVID. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, COVID. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, another topic here, but, you know, I'm really proud of what we're doing. We were able to get back and running, up and running, you know, the first really professional sport. Um, but we've kind of expanded on what we're doing now in terms of COVID. So now all athletes in support, before they even fly out to, say, an event in Vegas or in Fight Island, they're sent a testing kit at their house. Um, and through telemedicine online, they do the collection on themselves. Um, it's overnighted to a laboratory. So we have a COVID result on them before they're even able to leave town. Um, that's great. The hope there is preventing anyone from even arriving, you know, at a fight location that's tested positive. How is this COVID situation kind of put, I'm assuming it's put a lot more work on your shoulders too. How has your position, your role evolved with during this COVID era? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not too, actually my partner, Donna Marcolini, um, I don't know if you guys know her, but we're kind of a two person shop in the athlete health and performance department. Uh, she's kind of taken on the logistics of getting these kits out to everybody at home and kind of managing that. Uh, my role um, is actually the bearer of more bad news. It seems whenever I call somebody, I'm either talking about a positive test in the USADA world or now a positive test in the at-home COVID testing world. Um, so, you know, it, those are difficult calls to make. 
Um, the interesting thing, though, most of the calls that I've made with, with athletes or coroners at home that, that have tested positive, they're asymptomatic. And I think that's part of the issue, you know, with this COVID. If you're sick these days, no one's going out or leaving their house, but it's those people that have it that don't know they have it. Um, and the overwhelming majority of those that I've spoken with didn't know they even had it. How long does it take for the you guys to see the results for those at-home tests? Yeah, so our turnaround time is pretty quick, and we're operating on a short window. We want to get that test done as close to the departure date as possible, but with enough time so that we do have that result before they depart. So, you know, I think average, it's probably, it's within a week um, of them departing, um, probably four or five days. Great. Um, oh, did you? Um, now kind of circling back to the USADA testing, mm-hmm. how do you guys determine, like, which athletes get tested more? So that is all determined by USADA. So random. Yeah, well, it's not random. So that's uh-huh. one. It's not random. What, what I say is every test that USADA does is done with a purpose. It is not drawing names out of a hat. Um, they don't really necessarily share their testing strategy with me. Um, the idea behind that is any solid anti-doping program, maybe the most important feature of it is independence. So the UFC could say, look, there is zero business interest decisions that go into this program. Um, we're not protecting, you know, our most lucrative fighters. We're not sending, you know, more tests at those that, you know, maybe don't bring the fans or the eyes to the event. So all those decisions are made by USADA. Um, what we have seen, what I can tell you is those athletes that have reached, you know, the 50 plus testing plateau are usually the championship level athletes. Those obviously that have staying power are going to be around for a while. Uh, but I mean, honest truth is that USADA never shares with me, you know, their testing strategy. Um, you know, in, in some world, I guess, you know, if I was friends or wanted to protect a certain athlete, if I knew that strategy, I could give that athlete a heads up. I mean, I would never do that, but this prevents that from even being in the discussion. Who's on that 50 plus list? Holly Holmes, Daniel Cormier. Holly Holm, DC, um, Amanda Nunes, Jose Aldo, and Cowboy Cerrone so far. So, I mean, you look at that list and that's a who's who of the last five to 10 years in the UFC. All future Hall of Famers for sure. And what's really cool, and DC mentioned this when we had his little ceremony, is this is an absolutely a mark or stamp of approval on a career. I think DC said, look, you know, so he was asked what this means. We gave him a little Letterman jacket. He goes, well, hopefully someday when my kids are older and they see this in the back of the closet and ask me what this is, he can say, and all these other athletes can say, look, this is a stamp of approval in my career. This means that I did things the right way. Set a great example for other MMA, UFC fighters and, you know, fans and, and kids. I want to ask you about the blood testing, though. Um, is that just as often as the urine testing? Or, or is there more urine samples than blood samples drawn from each athlete? There are tested? more urine samples than blood samples, but here's, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it is not the case, and everybody seems to think this, that blood is more accurate than urine. You can actually detect more things in urine for longer periods of time than you can in blood. Um, you know, talking about this issue that, you know, John Jones, O'Malley had, where you're talking about these picogram levels of prohibited substances. That's showing up only in urine. It wouldn't be showing up in blood. And, you know, when the body metabolizes or cuts fat, especially getting close to a fight where an athlete's dropping their weight, um, those substances are stored in certain fat cells, um, tend to be released into the urine, not into the blood. So actually urine's a more effective um, method of testing. 
where I'm going with this is to detect something like EPO, which could live in the body for shorter periods of time. Uh, isn't that only drawn through through blood and not urine, or is it no. both? No, it's it's mainly urine. It's um, urine. The positive EPO tests we've had under the program were from urine tests. Um, blood can be done. Blood's really good for that biological passport issue we talked about earlier. So that if you saw a tremendous increase in red blood cells from a blood test, you you could know something's up. I mean, the human body will have a variance of you know a couple points here and there in terms of how many red blood cells are being produced. But if you're seeing jumps of five, ten percentage points something's going on. And so I think when USADA would see something like that in a blood test, they would go then into a mode of a lot of urine tests because that's how EPO is detected through urine. And is EPO tested every single time um, an athlete's drawn? Because I know we had the TJ Dillashaw situation a couple of years ago. I think his suspension is coming to a close here in January 2021. Yep. And obviously with your work with cyclists, that's a big drug with cyclists, Lance Armstrong. Um, is EPO tested every single time or is it kind of random? It's not. So it's, it's called a special analysis um, and it's it's more time consuming. It's more costly. Um, but again, that's up to USADA to determine um, that. Now, you know, we could do EPO tests on every single sample. However, I don't think it would be a good use of resources because it would take away, I think, the volume of overall testing that we're doing. And, you know, based on the data that USADA is looking at, the biological passport data, all this information gets put into a computer, an algorithm spits out, hey, here's probably the issues that are going on if they're not, if, if they are. And I don't think the data shown that it's, you know, that it's, that it's widely used, um, but it's definitely strategically tested for. And it's on the data that they would, for example, would T.J. Dillashaw look at it and be like, we need to test him for EPO? Yeah, I, I don't know, you know, what necessarily caused them um, to do that. Um, but I do know, again, as we talked about earlier, this is not in any way, shape, or form drawing names out of a hat. What USADA has, you know, told me from the beginning is every single test has a purpose of why we're doing that test on that day of the week, of that time of the day. If there's any special analysis done, it's all done for a purpose. But I'm assuming the ones that have uh, tested positive for performance-enhancing substances and are in the program are going to be tested more frequently if they're suspended upon return? Yeah, I think that's that's a good assumption. So speaking of uh, returning, Nick Diaz's manager has reported that he should be returning sometime in 2021. Can you confirm if he's re-entered the USADA testing pool? Yeah, he was never out of the USADA testing pool. Oh, okay. Yeah, so he's been in it uh, from the get-go. Yep. So he's been, and um, is Conor McGregor? You, you, can yeah, you so normally it's interesting. We don't, and the media has tried to do this, we don't announce you know, the, the retirement status of an athlete based on the USADA program. We leave that up to the athlete if they want to do that or not. But as everybody probably saw this weekend, Connor was tested on his yacht by USADA. And so because he chose to disclose that he was tested, yeah, that was accurate. They did test him this last weekend. Excellent. Well, I know you have the height comparison uh, compared to MMA fighters to NBA players, uh, you know, Jeff Nowitzki, close to Dirk Nowitzki. And I know you got that <laughs> basketball reference. This is something I've been very curious about for a very long time. I don't think the NBA, the National National Basketball Association, has nearly as strict testing as something like the NFL, uh, the UFC, 
and probably I'm assuming now cyclists too, uh, but you really don't test that, especially blood tests. And I would think for professional athletes that have an 82 game schedule, recovery would be a very, very important thing. And, you know, I'm no expert. We have you as the expert. I don't know if that's what HGH is great for, human growth hormone, something like EPO that we brought up before. And your opinion, do you think there are NBA players that are taking performance-enhancing substances that we don't know about because they don't have that testing? Absolutely. The answer is yes. I mean, I think it's, you know, having played college basketball and know the wear and the tear and the joints of running up and down the floor and practicing, yes, certain things like HGH, you know, low levels of testosterone would aid immensely in recovery. And it is the fact that their, their, their program is not a very robust program. Um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but you know, you look at baseball, who's done a complete 180. They had no testing back in the pre-Balco days. I think Balco exposed the problem maybe more than any other sport in baseball. And now they've turned it around. I think they have a really, really solid program. Unfortunately, NBA hasn't had that scandal. And I think that's sometimes, you know, what it takes for, you know, some of these sports to, to wake up and listen and maybe get some pressure politically to do so like happened to baseball. Um, but for anyone to say that NBA, you know, performance enhancing drugs wouldn't translate for an N NBA player, they're absolutely wrong. Um, and the other thing with those players we talked earlier about resources that you would have to create a designer who drug. Who makes more money than NBA makes players. more money than NBA players, right? So, yeah. It's the elephant in the room. It's something I thought about for years, too. Um, are there any noticeable side effects long-term effects, short-term effects of athletes that take these performance-enhancing drugs that you notice? Absolutely. And, you know, um, going through my federal agent days, you know, one thing that I loved doing was I sat down at tables like this across from these professional athletes, and I, I had the hammer on them. I knew what they were doing. I had all the records. And so it was basically like, look, tell me the truth. You're just a witness in this case. But if you lie to me, we're going to prosecute you. So because of that, I think I got some of the most honest conversations that anyone's ever had with athletes, with dozens and dozens of them about their use of performance-enhancing drugs, why they chose to do it, how it helped them, um, like you talked about, side effects that they would have. I think the biggest side effects to performance-enhancing drug use is the mental or the psychological side effect that when you're on them, you feel like Superman or Superwoman. Um, but when you get off them, you go to a level that is much lower, you know, your confidence level much lower than when you even started, you know, you regress back. And that's, you know, that's the, the thing with this. Once you start on that path and go to them, you're going to be in bad shape as an athlete if you ever have to get off them. Both physically, you feel weaker, but maybe more importantly, in the head and in the mind. And, you know, for, for an MMA fighter or a UFC fighter, I mean, everybody's at such a high level of skill, they're in such great shape. Most of the time it comes to the psychological preparation and how mentally tough they are. And man, that would be, that would be something that would be really, really tough for someone to be on something for a period of time and have that kind of crutch and then go off it and just lose you know, all your confidence. Um, during those confessions, did anyone's like why um, surprise you at all? Or if all their answers were kind of the same? Most of them were the same. So they were, look, everyone that I'm competing against, um, both for playing time on my team or opponents on other team, I know they're using. And so I'm at a disadvantage. Um, I know that these drugs work. 
Uh, the baseball players I talked to said, look, one great year could be the difference between, you know, a three-year, million-dollar-year contract to a five-year, $20 million contract. So the incentive, you know, financially is so great. And there's one thing, there's no argument. These drugs work. They, they make these already gifted athletes even greater. Um, they give them more strength, more endurance, more confidence. So when you have that mix, you know, it's a recipe. The temptation is there. I, I understood a lot of, you know, the reasoning. I never sat across the table and said, ah, I don't buy that. You know, you're full of crap. It's like, I get it. I'm like, if I was in my young 20s competing for millions of dollars and being put in that situation too, I can't say, especially in, you know, the pre-testing days in baseball where they didn't really even care, I can't say I wouldn't have had made, made that decision either. What I find fascinating uh, about is uh, a sport like the NFL, you know, four-game suspension usually, I believe that is, that's a fourth of a season, and so many guys are still getting busted, but the public is okay. They're more willing to accept it because it's a sport of the NFL, whereas baseball, you know, we're talking 50-game, 100-game yeah. suspensions. Obviously, there's that black eye, that black hole. Um, I just find it so unique and so different that the public's perception of performance-enhancing drugs changes by sport by sport. Yeah, it, it really is interesting um, to see that. Look, I mean, you know, my biggest motivation for doing this is I, and I saw this in baseball, I saw it firsthand. I talked to parents of high school kids that got on steroids because their heroes were on them. Several of them got off in that whole, you know, mental aspect where they went just down in the dumps. Several committed suicide, the parents believed because they were on them and got off. So, I mean, I think the trickle-down effect toward the youth of this world and the example that our professional athletes are setting is so, so important here. And, you know, talking about, you know, taking shortcuts, which these things are, um, I just don't think has any, any place in any professional sports. Now, on the other side, and interesting, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas uh, Mavericks, is big on this. He says, look, somebody tears their ACL, right? They're out for a year. They're not playing. Why shouldn't that individual be able to take some of these medications, HGH, you know, steroids to speed up healing process. And yeah, there may be a little argument to that. The problem being is that it's a slippery slope. And we saw this in the TRT days of, of MMA, yes. right? Where commissions were giving authority and approval to fighters to have some in their system. And what happened? They'd start manipulating that. They, you know, they had a level they were supposed to be at, say, 500. They take a little bit extra to get it to 900, something very difficult, I think, to police and monitor. But, you know, maybe there is a way some, some way down the road that, you know, if you're not going to be competing, you're just trying to get to a normal level and be able to objectively define what that normal level is. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to that. Well, how long would that stay in your system for? It just depends what the drug is. So different drugs have different clearance times. Some of them, the, the drugs the cyclists were using, had clearance times of hours. What they were doing in the Tour de France is they knew they weren't being tested from 10 p.m. till 6 a.m. in the morning. They had an eight-hour window to manipulate during the tour. So they used certain drugs at 10.01 p.m., knowing that by 6 a.m. in the morning, they'd be gone from their system. So hours, clearance times. Other things like the M3 metabolite, um, we just had a hearing before in Nevada. A couple, another, another couple UFC fighters have had that issue. We're now going on four plus years where that's staying in athlete systems in some cases. So it just all depends on what, what the substance is. Is Lance Armstrong the worst athlete you've ever had to deal with? Uh, well, I never actually dealt with him in person, but I did talk to you know teammates, coaches, um, 
And yeah, a lot of bad stories about not not the cheating aspect of, but you know what type of personality that he had. I think I think that personality got him eventually in a lot of problems. The denial. Um, let's close the chapter on the NBA stuff, though. If you had to put a finger in the wind, guest, I brought it up. The elephant in the room. What percentage of players have dabbled in performance enhancing substances? Yeah, I hate I hate to put a number on it. Um, I really do. I'll go as far as saying that it's it's going on in the NBA, without a doubt. But number wise. I mean, I just have no idea. Actually, the whole Balco case, there was only, I think there was a hand, couple of NBA players. So it wasn't as prevalent as the other sports. Baseball, number one. Um, Olympic sports. Uh, we had a boxer, Shane yeah, Mosley. Bill Romanowski with Romanowski, the NFL. The NFL, yeah. But um, I haven't had a lot of those sit-down discussions across the table with NBA players. It's interesting because with Balco, Victor Conte, he's actually moved on into boxing and he works with Snack, or his company's called Snack, S-N-A-C, Nutrition, and he's working with a lot of professional boxers up up there in Northern California, in your neck of the woods. Uh, what do you make of that situation? And uh, is, it, is it clean? I mean, hopefully. I mean, you know, everything he says now is he learned his lesson and he went to prison for six months and... Um, but I don't know. Certainly, man, if I was a boxer, he wouldn't be one that I'd choose to associate with. Interesting. And well, what about, uh, you mentioned Olympians and the Olympics in 2021. I mean, can you kind of talk a bit more about how the USADA testing protocol is for the Olympics? Yeah, we, we talked about this yeah. the other the other night at the fight because yes. Helen may be getting back in that game and swimming. Hopefully, You yeah. could be in the USADA pool pretty soon. Hence, the timing is just absolutely perfect before we all go to Flight Island, or this is going to come out in Flight <laughs> yeah. Island, and we're all going to be on the same plane, too. Exactly. So USADA is recognized by Congress as the official anti-doping agency of the United States. So anyone who's under that Olympic umbrella, I'm not sure you know, what level you have to achieve to get in that testing pool, becomes part of their registered testing pool. And again, it's a situation where you can be tested at any time. Uh, the testing is very, very sensitive. Um, you know, I, I kind of feel for the U.S. athletes because when they get to these international competitions, the testing's good at the international competitions, but it's the off-season when they're back in their respective country, that burden then falls on that respective country's anti-doping agency. And as we've seen over the years, some are better than others. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the movie Icarus. On, I was going to bring it up. Brian uh, Fogel's documentary in Icarus. Uh, Great. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. So, I mean, it was a state-sponsored uh, doping program that the Russians were running um, to the level that during the Sochi Games, allegedly the KGB came in and they were drilling holes in the laboratory's walls and removing the dirty Russian urine in the middle of the Olympic Games and replacing it with clean urine. And so, I mean, how frustrating to UFC athletes. I actually was on a podcast a couple months ago from a U.S. Uh, cross-country skier. Um, and you looked at the, you know, the metal platform in Sochi, and I think all three people on the platform ended up testing positive and how frustrating that was, you know, for this athlete. So yeah, it's, it's a big, big issue. And there is, there's definitely not, um, even this on the world stage stage in terms of anti-doping right now, still to this day, I believe so. Yep. Still to this day. Well, what changes do you think should be made worldwide? One of the biggest problems is the umbrella organization for anti-doping, WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency. And we're running into this right now with the Russia situation is that there's conflicts of interest there. So we have individuals that sit on the WADA board that also sit on the International Olympic Committee's board. 
So when it comes time, and there was a lot of discussion, do you ban Russia altogether? I mean, that's as egregious as you can get when you're stealing urine samples out of your own laboratory. Shouldn't they be banned from international competition for the next Olympics or whatever? And they weren't. They, they literally got a slap on the wrist. And so, you know, you talk to athletes from the U.S. that, you know, talking about fairness and even playing field. And they're like, wait a second, it's proven four years ago this happened. Nothing happened, you know, to this country's athletes. And, and that's, you know, what they're dealing with. That's very, very frustrating. So I know you probably believe in the right supplementation, the legal supplementation is going to benefit any young professional athlete going forward or amateur athlete or high school athlete. So for any of those young listeners out here that play a high school sport, what do you recommend that they take supplement-wise? Uh, protein, a multivitamin, what, what is it would you recommend? So the athletes? first thing I recommend, and our, our PI, Clint Wattberger, who runs our uh, sports nutrition department with the PI, uh, food first. A food first mentality. You should always try to get all your nutrition from real food. Cook balanced meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I mean, that's that's optimal. You can get everything you need from food. Um, I think you know, convenience wise, you're an athlete training a lot. You don't always have the time to come home and you know cook a well balanced meal. So I think at that point, um, you know, supplements can come into the play. I think the biggest thing, though, you're looking for is what we advise of all our athletes, third-party tested supplements. You shouldn't, and this goes for athletes and the general consumer um, as well. You should only use supplements that are third-party certified. The three of us could go outside in the parking lot, dig up some dirt around a tree, bottle it, and put it right on the shelves of a, of a GNC or a Costco as a supplement. There's no pre-market government review in the United States and pretty much worldwide on supplements. So the only way when I was an FDA agent that we found out there were bad supplements out there would be not until after the consumer already took them, suffered the health consequences or whatever it may be, and then we reacted after the fact. So just because you see something on the shelf of, of a supplement store does not mean that anybody tested very you know, loosely regulated to that point. So you should always be looking for third-party certification. Um, because that means that company went out of the way to have someone that has nothing to do with their company test the product to make sure the label's accurate and to make sure there's no prohibited substances in them. I hate the reactive rather than proactive approach when it comes to anything. And uh, that's just something that needs to change in our culture in its entirety. One of the craziest stories, in fact, I, you know, when I came on five years ago, I traveled all throughout the world, talked to as many of our athletes as I could about the program. Um, a little bit of scared straight, like, hey, this program's coming. You know, here's some of the horror stories that came before you. So there was a company that was making a multivitamin that was sold by CVS and Walgreens. Um, elderly people in Long Island, you can look this up, it's, in the inter it's on the internet, um, started presenting themselves at local hospitals with liver issues. Their, their palms were turning yellow, their eyes were turning yellow, so that's indicative of a liver injury. So what do they all have in common? They were all using this, it was a B-complex vitamin. So a very benign sounding, you're not talking, some supplements you can look at, you know, Rhino 5000 testosterone supplement, you probably don't wanna take that. This was a B-complex vitamin sold by CVS and Walgreens. It ended up having a very toxic anabolic steroid in it. And these poor elderly people were getting poisoned from taking it. That's the level that this goes to, and that's the level of care. A lot of our fighters, you know, when you first get to them, like, oh yeah, I don't, I don't use anything. I just use a, a protein and a multivitamin and amino acid. And I say, that's what I'm talking about. Those are supplements. And there's been many, many cases 
where vitamins, proteins, amino acids have bad stuff in them. So it doesn't necessarily need to be that Rhino 5000 supplement. It's very benign sounding supplements that can have these issues. So everything you take supplement wise should really be third party certified. But that's crazy that there are those companies that can have things, you know, in those stores and not be third party tested. Yeah. I mean, again, the way the supplement industry works in the U.S., there's no pre-market regulation or review. So it doesn't require a test, doesn't require the government coming out and saying, hey, you're good to go here. It goes right to the shelves. And then the government's role comes in after the fact, monitoring and making sure consumers aren't being hurt. Not until they are, does the government get involved. One of the last times I remember you spoke um, with the UFC, there was a press conference. It was about a year ago. It was to announce a partnership with a CBD company in Canada. What happened to that partnership? Part A in my question, part B is what is your stance on CBD with professional athletes? Yeah, well, I mean, what happened to that partnership? It's still an active partnership, but I think, you know, uh, COVID. So COVID just mm. kind of tabled a lot of things that we were planning, you know, on doing. So. Um, I know they did do the initial stages of signing up athletes. So we're going to we're going to do a study um, on them, a science backed study, um, but that got you know tabled a little bit with COVID. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the same issues exist with CBD. Um, is there so many small companies out there producing it and putting it in shelves? You don't quite know what you're getting. Um, one of our third-party certification companies, Banned Substance Control Group, so you can go, they have a website, bscg.com. They actually have a program where they're third-party testing CBD, and they have a handful of them right now. Um, but if I'm using CBD and I'm a consumer, I'm doing that as well. I'm going to third-party tested uh, supplements so that you know that what's in it on the label is what's in it, and you know there's nothing harmful in it um, as well. Look, anecdotally, um, a lot of our athletes use CBD, and I talk to a lot of our athletes about it, and they seem to think that they're getting a benefit. Um, you know, maybe assistance with sleep, um, anti-inflammatory properties, and I don't think the science is quite there yet, but I think the studies that have been done are leading in that direction that it does have some benefits for athletes. Yeah. I guess the other part of CBD is THC and marijuana, and obviously... And you go across all professional sports. A lot of athletes want to use that rather than taking painkillers. You mm -hmm. know, Brett Favre would pop so many painkillers after football games and stuff like that. But the the NFL has always been against marijuana for so many different years. What's your stance on marijuana? Yeah, first off, I mean, neither myself or the UFC is an advocate for anyone to use any drugs. Look, right. all drugs come with side effects. Um, and so a drug-free life would be, you know, ideal for everybody. However especially in the sport of MMA, what our athletes put their bodies through. I don't think the human body was necessarily made to do that. I think that was, you know, evolution kind of bred that out from the caveman days. Maybe back then you were fighting for your life on a daily basis, but I don't think the human body today is meant for that. So because of that, they definitely suffer issues that, you know, medications are probably appropriate. And yeah, I mean, when you look at what our athletes are using marijuana for, it's these three things. It's pain control. It is some anti-anxiety um, because the mental aspect of this game is overwhelming. I don't know how these, these athletes are so special to even make the walk to that octagon. When you're going to be facing one of the baddest dudes and girls on this planet in a locked cage, I mean, mentally to be able to do that just makes you a special, special person. Um, and then the last thing they all use it for kind of goes in line with the anxiety issue is sleep. 
It helps them to sleep. So what I hate about this is as we get close to fights, inevitably I start getting the calls. Jeff, I use marijuana for one of those issues. When should I stop? That's number one because we don't want them to test positive. But number two is what are the alternatives? I'm anxious as hell. I can't sleep and I'm in pain. Like what do I use? And over-the-counter stuff doesn't work for me. So what do I tell them? I look at the prohibited list and it's some opioids are okay at all times. Things like Xanax are okay at all times. Ambien, okay at all times. Those are highly, highly addictive drugs. Yeah. And I think that's a hole in anti-doping is I think we're in a sense pushing athletes toward more dangerous substances versus you know marijuana. I think studies on that have showed it doesn't have the addictive qualities um, that those other things do. So I mean, that's a huge, huge concern of mine. What we did in our program, the UFC program, we fixed this at the end of last year. So marijuana is now handled under a section called drugs of abuse, and it's treated differently than a performance-enhancing drug. So, and we have made this very clear to USADA, you will not see sanctions from marijuana positive tests under the UFC program. What we'll do instead is um, refer them to addiction specialists, have them talk with someone, just to make sure they're doing it you know, in a safe manner, that they don't have an issue or a problem. Um, and it's it's literally a slap on the wrist. It's technically a violation, but it's it's a public warning, no sanction. And it changes state by state in the United States by the different athletic commissions. There's different rules in New York than a, a Nevada. You're right on with that. And that's where the issue continues to remain is that the athletic commissions, and we just had a hearing last week or the week before, we had three cases on the docket for marijuana positives. And while I think athletic commissions have gotten more reasonable, these three cases in, before Nevada were uh, resulted in a six-month sanction and two four-and-a-half-month sanctions. I mean, probably going to miss a fight there. Um, but again, I just, you know, I don't like the, the, you know, the overwhelming prospect out there of what are we doing by, um, you know, sanctioning on marijuana. I th- really think we're pushing these athletes to drugs that are even more dangerous. That's true. So where do you see the future is for marijuana and USADA? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, think, I think a lot has to do in this country with federal law. Marijuana is still a Schedule One drug. That's the highest caliber of addiction and danger. It's in the same category as methamphetamine, heroin, things like that. does not need to be in that category. That's ridiculous. I think the fact, though, that it is a Schedule One drug makes these athletic commissions with their government agencies hesitant to say that it's okay and allowed. Um, I think what will happen is eventually you'll get an administration in there that will remove it from the Schedule 1 list, maybe even legalize it. And I think at that point, you know, these government athletic commissions probably will will allow it. Um, I think it is heading in that direction. You see, you know, states like California, while it's still on the prohibited list, I mean, I don't even think they sank maybe 30 days and a couple hundred dollar fine. Uh, New York does the same thing. So it's moving in that direction. Um, not there yet. We have UFC athletes in USADA. When do you anticipate MMA will be an Olympic sport? Ooh, it's a good question. So yeah, we it's interesting, you know, what's kind of preventing that. The UFC behind the scenes, we're very interested obviously in that happening because you can imagine the prospect of a gold medal winner that, you know, the nation's watching every day for a week win, and then they have their first MMA fight. They already come onto the scene, you know, with a huge level of popularity. Um, one of, you know, again, a lot of political issues with the Olympics. And I think what you're looking at is there is a handful of combat sports that are certified as Olympic sports. So at wrestling, boxing, uh, taekwondo, karate, judo, maybe. And 
I think what's happening is those sports see MMA as a bit of a threat. There's only so many Olympic sports every year. When you see one being added, what do you see? One being subtracted. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's some concern from those other sports that, uh-oh, if MMA comes onto the scene, we may be out. So I think that's, that's right now what's causing us not to be able to certify it as an Olympic sport, but we're working on that. The UFC is working on that. Well, speaking of Olympic sports and Olympics and those athletes, at what age do you think it is safe to start taking supplements? Yeah, I I would highly discourage, um, even I think on the high school level, again, you know, hopefully you're living at home and your mom and dad are cooking you well-balanced meals. Again, I think a food-first mentality um, is the best. But you know, again, out of convenience sake, um, you know, I can see some athletes maybe having to do that, but again, they should only be using third-party certified supplements. And look, everybody's looking for the magic bullet, right? Oh, I want to take something that's going to make me, you know, that supplements aren't going to do that. The gains that you're going to get are very, very marginal. Um, so, I mean, I've yet to run into a supplement that, you know, is going to cause a difference between a win and a loss in this sport. What did you make of uh, Paulo Costa kind of baiting the whole USADA thing with uh, Israel Adesanya? And he's already tested positive before in his past, and he's saying he didn't get tested. And I think a couple of days ago, they came to Brazil, they tested him. You're going to see him in a, in a week or a few days. Uh, what did you make of that whole situation? Did it probably put them on high alert that he even notified Yeah, them? I mean, first off with Paulo, his, his sanctioning under the USADA program was for an IV use. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't caught using performance-enhancing drug. And, you know, IVs are prohibited under this program because of what the cyclists were doing. They were using IVs to disguise the drugs they were using because it deleted their blood and urine. The IV itself is not necessarily performance enhancing. So when the video came out of Paulo using an IV, it was right after a weigh-in in New York. So he wasn't using it, you know, he was using it to rehydrate, not to, to gain an advantage. So... Those that say he had a USADA issue or problem, technically, yes, but it wasn't a performance-enhancing drug. That's good clarity. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, and and I I saw that a few weeks ago that he was kind of playing into it, that USADA hadn't been down there. Not the case. He was, he's been tested regularly, even through, you know, COVID. Brazil was shut down for a period of time. As soon as that opened back up, USADA actually has contracted drug collection officers or DCOs in Brazil and they got out and, and he was tested. So he's been tested many, many times under the program. And I think it's a little bit of gamesmanship. hundred percent. I was going to say he's baiting. <laughs> he's baiting everybody. He's yeah. toying with him a little bit. I like that. Are you going to be at Fight Island the whole five weeks? Uh, I don't think the whole time. I'm going for the first two weeks. I think I may come back here for two weeks and then go for the last uh, pay-per-view. That's what we're doing. Nice. That's exactly yeah. what we're doing. Except, uh, actually, not the first two weeks. We're actually going to come back after the Paulo Izzy fight. There's a two-week gap, and then we're going to go back from October yeah. 9th through nice. uh, the last two, the Korean zombie Ortega fight leading up to Gaethje and uh, Habib. That's a good strategy. I'm looking forward to going over there, but, man, five weeks would be a long time to be away, right? Were you, were you there? Uh, I did the not go time? the last time, no. And there was actually, you know, I was talking about it, there was some some controversy and some issues over there. So because of the time difference, yes. those fights were starting in the middle of the night. And so the, the first event, I think Volkanovsky had this happen to him, and I think Petra Jan, too, is USADA actually woke them up. Yes, so they, they were did. trying. Oh, yeah, they that. yeah. So just people know, I mean, that wasn't done haphazardly. We mm. had these discussions throughout the week. Um, we actually even connected with the PI who sent out sleep recommendations to the athletes. They were not trying to wake them up, um, but it just happened. Um, and so that's, that's why I'm going back over there. That should not be happening. Look, 
this program is a burden for everybody. You talk to these athletes. I think they generally like it about mm -hmm. how it makes the sport clean and how, you know, that kind of stamp of approval on their career. But it is a burden. I mean, they have to let USADA where they're no, know where they are 365 days a year, always be available. And there, that comes with some inconveniences that should not include being woken up two hours before you're going to get up the, the night or the day before a fight. Um, so we, they fixed that real quick over there, the last few events, but going back over there to make sure that that, that doesn't happen again because it shouldn't. I'm sure those athletes going to Fight Island this time are happy to hear that. Especially listening yeah. to this podcast. They're going to appreciate what you just said. That was yeah. a big thing. I remember that. We were there for that. We remember that yeah. clearly. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you're, you know, you're never going to be able to foresee all the issues and, and problems that come up. But something that I'm, I'm very proud of is when we do see something like that, we react very quickly. We're not going to let something like that linger. Um, a big thing that I do, and I, I talk to all our athletes about this, because USADA is running the program. They're making all the decisions. My job is literally to be eyes and ears for the athlete. My job is as much making sure things are fair as the program is strong. So when I hear something like that from them, um, you better believe like we're going to react right away and make sure it doesn't happen anymore. Where do you want to see this program a year from now, two years from now, five years from now? What can be the evolution process of this testing protocol for UFC fighters? I think we're really solid within the UFC. I think the problem exists. And you look now at most of our positive tests are coming from. They're coming from new fighters getting into the program. And you can imagine the problem that exists, that if, if things can stay in your system for years, yeah, um, you know, you could be running into scenarios where you have a high school athlete that doesn't, they're not getting education on safe supplements and what substances are approved or not. They could pay for it two or three years later. So what I'd really like to start seeing, and I am seeing, is that trickle-down effect into the local and regional shows. Let's face it, everybody wants to ultimately become a UFC fighter. That's the pinnacle. It's what everybody's working for. And what I'm starting to see is those athletes, the contender series guys and girls, when they show up now, two months or so before their fight, Donna and myself educate them. We're like, look, you could get a contract in two months. You're going to be thrown in this USADA program. Start making smart supplement choices right now. There's, you know, never too early to do that. Um, so that's really, I think, the evolution of this, the trickle-down effect into all of MMA, into the local regional shows, into the amateur, if we get Olympic status into there, because everybody's aspiring to get to the UFC, you've got to start preparing literally years in advance. I've asked this question to quite a few people, important people, of course, some fighters themselves, Dana White himself, Jeff, you are around the biggest names all the time, got your phone number, they talk to you. Who's your Mount Rushmore top four oh, MMA Jesus. fighters all time? We have to put you on the spot. Come on. Yeah, that's. I shouldn't. I watched the Dana one. I should have known <laughs> you were going to ask me that. Um, that's just that's too hard to say. I mean, I will say. Um, you want to know the best fight that I've that I've seen? Yeah, we can go with okay. that. Yeah. To me, the best fight I've seen in person uh, was Cub Swanson and Korean Superboy in uh, in Toronto, and I was sitting. So I was sitting cage side for that fight. And uh, so you guys, everybody knows Mark Ratner, our yes. senior VP of regulatory, legend. awesome legend. So under Mark, Matt Valenzuela um, works under him and he'll sub for Mark when Mark doesn't you know, travel to an event. So I was sitting next to him cage side and we do this occasionally. And both of us, I have a hard time controlling my emotions when I'm watching a fight, especially up that close. Like I probably should have a little bit more poker face going, but 
I react. And so I was during that fight and we were kidding like the rest of the weekend, he was sitting on my left. I had bruises on my arm and he had bruises on his because we were elbowing each other so hard <laughs> throughout that fight. It was just going so crazy. I mean, I, I have not seen a fight with that much action. I'll slightly rephrase the question because I know <laughs> you don't want to answer it. Would you, for a fighter that's tested positive for a performance enhancing substance, mm-hmm. could you put them on your Mount Rushmore? Now, I'd have a difficult time doing that, although I would be able to differentiate between non-intentional use. Mm. So a John Jones scenario, look, and John's admitted it, he didn't make good, smart decisions and could have avoided these things, but there's been zero evidence that he was intentionally cheating. Um, so he absolutely would still be um, in the equation for that for that Mount Rushmore. Well, at least we got so one he, out yeah, of him. Yeah, he's one we of got them. one out of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Fight Island, which fight are you looking forward to the most? Mm-hmm. There's so many great ones. I mean, it's got to be Israel and Paula, right? I mean, as Dana keeps saying, I just don't see any scenario where that's not an entertaining fight and and not the best fight maybe of the year or that I've seen. I mean, I just can't see it. 100% agree with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, we are super excited for uh, Habib fighting Justin Gaethje. But uh, when you look at those two, there seems to be legit bad blood. Yeah, between Israel yes. and Paulo. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know Paulo's one, and he was there. He was front row and center for his last two fights against Whitaker, Israel against Whitaker, mm-hmm. and obviously against Yoel Romero. And he's going to make it a point to not bait him and to go after him to bring the fight to him to come forward. Yeah. And uh, it's you just know there's going to be a collision course. I mean, the, the Paulo Yoel Romero fight again. I was sitting up close for that one, um, and you know, you guys sit up close too, so you're kind of. You know, desensitized to the sounds that you hear and the, you know, being up that close to violence. Man, that was a fight that, holy smokes, like I could not believe how, you know, powerful those punches that those guys were eating and taking and giving out. And, you know, Dana's 100% right on, I think. Paulo's going to come after him from that opening bell. And, you know, some of the things that Israel can do and his defense. And, I mean, it's going to be an incredible fight. What's your take real quick? Uh, I want to close it out on this topic, on the weight cutting. Um, I've been a big proponent of this 165-pound weight division, you know. Uh, make everything increments of 10. Go 125, 35, 45, 55, 65. Move welterweight to 75. Go 85. I'm not really sure if you want a 195, but you can do that 20-pound gap because there might be less competition, but there's so much competition at 155 and 170. What's your uh, stance on weight cutting with these fighters? Yeah, so, I mean, when, I, when the USADA program came into effect, obviously the IV rule took, you know, took effect, and um, there was a lot of controversy over that. And as I said earlier, it was not done for dehydration, weight cutting issues. It was done because it can be used to mask other drug use. But I think it did have an effect on weight cutting. I think you'd see, even though we you know, occasionally have weights missed, um, I think you see you know, better numbers. Certainly we do. When, when a fighter checks in at the beginning of the week, first thing we do when they get into town is weigh them. And so I've looked at those numbers over the last five years, and it's gone down significantly, the amount of weight that's being lost during the week. Um, I think the PI has had huge, huge um, uh, implications with that. Um, you know, if you go work with Clint Wattberger, our director of sports nutrition, he can do things, you know, the right way um, and is smart about how he does things. It's science-based. So I think it's gotten better. Um, look, in regards to, you know, to more weight divisions, I mean, how could you ever question Dana White and his judgment and what he's done with this sport? So Dana's the one that ultimately is going to make decisions there. And 
I will never, ever question that guy. I mean, just when you think the UFC can't get any bigger or better, the sport can't be more popular, it does. And that's all attributable to the decisions that he makes. So Dana's the man there and will always be the man, you know, to make those decisions. When he shut me down and then <laughs> gave me that interview the next day and said, you know, we got this deal for seven more years, 2025. And I said, the schmo's young, we can wait. Uh -huh. I haven't bothered him since. And I won't, you know, I, I, I agree with those sentiments. And obviously he's been doing this a lot longer than I've even been a fan in many ways. So... Yeah. Um, he's the man and, uh, I'll go by it. I just thought it'd be fun. And if there's ever a change, I am all for it. I'm not going <laughs> to push for it, but, uh, I'm for that. Uh, final thoughts. Uh, well, thank you so much you know, you for coming on the show. Absolutely. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Like you guys, you guys hustle. I think I've watched, you know, I did a little, uh, homework on this and watched the, the Dana episode and was talking about the hustle that you guys have and you do. And I think that's, that's what fans are looking for. You provide them with a lot of contact context. We see you guys all over the place, um, and that can't be easy. So, yeah, thank you for you know what you guys are doing, the role that you play in making the sport more popular, more mainstream. I appreciate that, and that's definitely our goal. I just think all sports media in general, like everything, there needs to be refinement, some evolution over time. And you know, when large corporations kind of kind of own the space, a lot of little nuanced things that hardcore and casual fans could get lost in translation over time. And we're going to hustle. We're going to find ways to, to bring unique content to the fans and as much as possible. And I appreciate that recognition. It means a lot coming from you. Yeah, it's awesome. It was Atlanta. That was your first press conference, right? That was the first one where I spoke. That's where I had my first viral <laughs> So I was, I think I had a call from USADA about a positive test, matter of fact. And so I was watching and then went back kind of in backstage on the phone. And I hear all these people laughing and all this. So I came back out and asked a coworker, I'm like, what happened? Like some schmo guy just got up and asked Dana this question. <laughs> I'm like, what? And was there not, I don't know if it was you, somebody asked a question about the USADA program and my name, I think he referred the report, maybe it wasn't you, to me. So someone said, yeah, your name came up and then the schmo guy came like out of the woodwork. Yeah, I think that question, uh, there was a question, it uh, might've been right before me or right around me. I had it. that last question, but yes, your yeah. name did come up in that press conference right. 100%. Uh, I, you know, I just, I'm just lucky I got the mic at that time, but yes, uh, coincidence, I, I think not. Here we are. <laughs> I, 34 episodes later. <laughs> That's awesome. We appreciate you a lot. Uh, we'll see you over in Fight Island. Jeff Nowitzki, episode 34, The Schmo Zone. We are out. <laughs>